yeah, before we get into that, I had a couple of things to say. Oh, boy. <laughs> did you hear that? I did. <laughs> oh, that didn't work so well. What was that? That was a little bit of uh, static. You're just trying to loosen me up. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, well, here we go. It's time for... Welcome to Film Church. My name is Jeff Bugby, and this podcast is about movies, filmmaking concepts, and the cinematic arts. Today's podcast, I will give a shout out to a forthcoming film fest, Slam Dance 2021. In Movie Magic Minutes, I'll tell you about the seven-hour Lolita movie screenplay. And film school fact, what is a shooting ratio? And tonight, I have uh, my lovely wife with us, Megan Bugby. She's here now. Megan, how you doing? Um, I'm nervous. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if this music thing is working the way I wanted it to. It's kind of making my heart pound really fast. <laughs> I needed some like meditative, chill music to get me in the mood. I do have my my confidence juice. That's good. Not guzzling. But uh, yeah, that was the first time you heard the the intro. Too loud? No, it's good. It sounds very professional. Oh, thank you. So uh, I'm going to get into my first little segment here, which is the the forthcoming film fest of uh, Slam Dance. I'm about to declare this festival awesome. It is in the month of February. Um, it's a special edition. Slam Dance is usually uh, going on with. Uh, the Sundance Film Festival in Park City, but they decided to do a virtual film fest uh, and drive-in. So if you are in, um, I think it's Palm Desert, California, you can attend a couple of the screenings before and at the very end of the film fest. But everybody else can just pay 10 bucks and sit down at their computer or TV and check out Slamdance Film Festival. Uh, if you visit slamdance.com, uh, you can buy the tickets there. They're only 10 bucks for the entire festival. It's going for two weeks from February 12th through the 25th. And it looks like there's some pretty cool movies this year. You should check it out. You better publish this quick so people can hear about this. Yeah, um, we are recording uh, January 29th. Hopefully we can get it out by next Friday. All right. So, uh, this next part is, um... Movie, movie, This is the, the writer of the book, Lolita. And we're going to be talking about a couple of the films. 
mainly focusing on Stanley Kubrick's film uh, from 1962. After Nabokov completed the screenplay for Kubrick, Kubrick told Nabokov that the script was much too unwieldy, contained too many unnecessary episodes, and would take about seven hours to run. Although Nabokov did approve of Kubrick's version of Lolita, he did say that only ragged odds and ends of my script had been used. The modifications, the garbling of my best little finds, the omission of entire scenes. The addition of new ones and all sorts of other changes may not have been sufficient to erase my name from the credit titles, but they certainly made the picture unfaithful to the original script. Nabokov went on to say that my first reaction to the picture was a mixture of aggravation, regret, and reluctant pleasure, while others were painful. After some time of quiet contemplation, the writer reflected on the process saying that nothing had been wasted after all and that one day I might publish it. It being the screenplay version of Lolita, it did get published, of course, but only after Stanley Kubrick's approval in 1972. The 1973 revised version of the script was 213 pages and was printed in book form starting in 1974. If you are a fan of the book or the movie, check out the screenplay version written by Vladimir Nabokov. <laughs> Nabokov. Nabokov. Film school fact. Shooting ratio. What is it? So uh, a film shooting ratio has to do with how many takes are recorded for each scene in the script. Overall, the ratio is calculated by total footage recorded to how much of that footage is actually used in the film. So the shooting ratio cannot be determined until the film is in the can, that is, um, until it has been completed. Who cares? Right? Who cares about the shooting ratio of a film? Well, in the end, uh, the editor or editing team is the most affected crew. A high ratio means that there is a lot of footage to comb through. Directors like Stanley Kubrick and Francis Ford Coppola had reputations for high shooting ratios, while others like Alfred Hitchcock were known for their expertise in low quantity and high quality of takes. In the past, a large amount of footage meant your budget suffered during shooting. If you were exposing film, you were essentially burning money on the takes that didn't work. Today, in the digital age, filmmakers are not burning through film stock cash, but post-production costs can suffer if you have to pay a team of editors to sift through hours and hours, if not days worth of recorded footage. Hitchcock is a meticulous example. His approximate shooting ratio was three to one, meaning for every three minutes of footage filmed, one minute was used in the movie. Where in a stark contrast, Kubrick's shooting ratio in the film The Shining was somewhere around 100 to one. Now, can you imagine trying to sh sift through nearly two hours of a scene just to find one minute? That means that if the scene was 10 minutes, you had 20 hours of footage to dig through to find the best take. It's not just watching that 20 hours, but discussing it with other editors, watching it again, presenting it to the assistant director, then the director, going back to the footage, 
and on and on. And Sounds that's what painful. It, yeah, that's the shooting ratio. It's uh, basically it, it's really something that producers look at overall because they want to know like if you've been making movies for a while, are you able to to get it done quickly, or are you the auteur who needs to take a hundred takes <laughs> for one what scene? What was Kubrick? Can you? Yeah, Kubrick. So in The Shining. 100 to 1. So he, he would shoot take after take after take. And but when he was shooting Lolita, he was using film, correct? He sure was. So yeah. he didn't have that ratio, probably. Well, he did. So even though he, he was notorious for burning through a lot of film, he was good enough to to be okay with that in terms of like the budget. I well, mean, maybe the, that's what made him good was because he actually just decided to say, you know, fuck it. I'm doing it. If you guys want to film, I'm going to do it right and not well, yeah. care. You know, he was a photographer before he was a filmmaker. And so he was very obsessed with framing the shot. And if the actor's, didn't do exactly what he wanted them to do or it wasn't right in his mind he would make them do it again and he did that many times and that, the uh that film that i mentioned of his the shining mm -hmm. was probably the most notorious well and in lolita he really did push some of the actors as well and even went so far as allowed the main actress to be abused by the producer of that film right because it would help her yeah so you were you were going into how you know the producer was pretty well disgusting in his behavior well i i did some of my own research and there was a, an article that uh, I'll put into the show notes but that goes into pretty good detail about how the production of Stanley Kubrick's film turned into the real life Lolita yeah so Lolita was a book published in 1955 by Vladimir Nabokov it was picked up in France in 1955 that was the original published date right in so, france no france hmm. originally banned it i thought they did but it, they were the first to publish it it was a very small publisher oh right because american publishers didn't want to touch it because they were afraid of the lawsuits right yeah so 1955 olympia press uh, published and I think it was the next year, nineteen yeah, nineteen fifty six, the French government bans it along with some other books from Olympia Press. So I guess they were putting out some risque material at the time. Hmm. But while it came out in France, it was also making its way into Great Britain and apparently British customs were were stopping the books from entering the country which eventually led to the 1956 government of France banning the book. 
So yeah, I was I was curious as to how that all unfolded, but I guess eventually it was 1958 when the American publisher put it out. Uh, G. P. Putnam's Sons, which I've never heard of them, but they um, they decided to take the risk and it, it paid off. <laughs> it was uh, you know number one bestseller for many years. Well, I think the only reason that they decided to take it on is because of the scandal so it had a lot of publicity Mm -hmm. oh yeah I mean it just kind of helps it sell itself and I I guess in America it wasn't as big of a deal uh, to at least the literary world no they loved it America loved it. They embraced it from the beginning so I'm not sure about that 1958 I thought they published it in 1955 that was just france yeah it took took them a while i looked it up so where what are your sources (laughs) (laughs) i looked at a couple of places so uh wikipedia was one and then there was some other articles Uh, there was a book uh, that had a timeline uh, of nabokov's um, history pretty much but yeah it was originally Uh, published in 1955. So that's one of the interesting things about Lolita. It was was his first book that he wrote in English. So Nabokov was, you know, Russian, and he came to live in America, and he was a professor in Stanford, uh, English professor, and he he loved America. When he came here, he just fell in love with it, and he mm-hmm. wanted to write a novel that represented to him not only America, but embraced the language of the time. And so he, it was written in English, and then later translated to other languages including Russia, but it was banned in Russia for a very long time because of the you know, the subject sub- matter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the erotic motifs and but, controversy. <laughs> but it's not erotic. That's very, that must be very, made very clear that it is not an erotic book. It's, some people have taken it as erotic because if you, if you read some of Humbert's lines and you, you didn't know that he was saying it about a 12-year-old child, you would feel, oh, this is, you know, completely passionate and erotic and a love story. Right. But the fact of the matter is it's about a 12-year-old child who doesn't feel the same, um, who, in my opinion, just wanted a father. Her father had died when she was very young. She didn't have a good relationship with her mother, you know, teenage, going into teenage years. Of course. And I think initially she looked to Humbert as a father figure, a protector. And because he did show her attention that no other adult to that time had shown her, she reciprocated, but in a childlike manner. But to Humbert, in his mind her reciprocation was somehow sexualized it's a it's pretty dark overall it is dark and it gets it starts out fairly light <laughs> mm-hmm. and nabokov even 
says that the beginning is sort of a trick for the reader. He he does like to give the reader puzzles and not spell everything out, which is, I appreciate that. Sure. I mean, the good books are making you think rather than telling you what to think. Yeah, yeah. And he he did really understand people's all of people's opinions and I think that's why you know that quote that you were talking about earlier that he said about the film I think he he really was allowing Kubrick he was really being gracious to Kubrick with those words I think there is an undercurrent of yeah but you failed (laughs) you know oh yeah yeah well he he gave him an artistic license yeah, and he got money for it, so he had to kind of pr- he had to promote the film. He didn't have a choice, I don't think. It would have been in poor taste. Yeah. Anyway, so going back to Nabokov, he he taught mainly at Wellesley College in the states, but then he also um, had stints at uh, Cornell and Harvard, and I think eventually he was. Uh, major professor at Cornell. He was, yeah. I thought it was Stanford at first, but it's Cornell. Yeah, so he did teach at Stanford, but it was just a summer course. Okay, so that's why I was confused. Yeah, so he was all over the place. And even, you know, being a visiting lecturer at Harvard in uh, Mm -hmm. 1952. Yeah, so he he was all over the place. And he didn't really get to retire from all of that until Lolita really took off. And some of his other books. Yeah, it gave him great fame because of the scandal. All right, let's get into talking about the movies. It was a good film. If you didn't read the book and you only watched the film, as most, you know, this is an old story, but I think the message would have been lost. I don't think that that's, I guess that's one of the reasons I really disliked the movie is that it destroyed the theme, the true essence of the book. And the book was not meant to be erotica. It was meant to make a statement and talk about something that was not being talked about. Well, there there was a second film. We watched both. Mm -hmm. So the 1997 version of Lolita with Jeremy Irons playing Humbert. Uh, You thought that that film was a little bit more accurate it was more accurate in the sequence and the scenes, so it stayed more true to uh, the literal writing of the book, but it didn't, it really sexualized Lolita in a way that was disturbing, but also I could understand why they did it, because Humbert, in the book, Humbert is the narrator, and it we are hearing this story only from Humbert's perspective. Right. So we aren't so, hearing it from Lolita's perspective ever, except when she, he allows us to. Right. Well, the, the book was written that way, right? That he mm-hmm. is the narrator. Yes. Well, because it's written as his memoir published posthumously. It's right. interesting. Technique. Well, so so the, the, the overall theme of this episode is... Um, movies uh, ruining the book <laughs> that's, and that's good 
you know, it's been going on since 1920. Right, right. It's very rare to find a a film that does the book justice. You know, know, we were discussing last night about Lord of the Rings is probably the best example. The only example, probably. Yeah, (laughs) probably. I mean, there's, there's been a lot of films and Hitchcock actually made a lot of films based on books. Well, Hitchcock, I mean, he's just brilliant anyways. These movies and this book, and I should say also the screenplay, because Nabokov ended up publishing his his version of the screenplay, which has its own story, I would assume. I have not read the entire thing, but and you haven't read it either, but I feel like you probably want to soon well had i known that it existed until last night i would right. have demanded i read it before doing this podcast <laughs> um but yeah i i love i love reading screenplays actually i think they're interesting yeah i mean it's it's a whole other form of literary wonder yeah it is and you know, bad screenplays, but like oh, yeah. for good movies, you know, like The Clockwork Orange, mm-hmm. I recommend that screenplay. Reading well, and that, that was a book too. So it was a book which I also read. I mean, yeah, that story. Talk about. Okay, let's talk about why we're. I'm drawn to this Lolita book because I feel like it does come across as kind of grotesque and oh why why would you be talking about this well yeah a lot of people won't pick it up because of the subject matter yeah and i encourage you to broaden your horizons because it is a beautifully written book nabokov is probably one of my favorite writers after reading this book it's he just knows how to capture um, emotion and imagery in in a way that is like no other. The true draw to this book was why, you know, why do people feel this way? I want to know what goes on in the messed up mind. Well, and it was something that was taboo to talk about. It was, yeah. but, what, you know, and that is the that makes me so mad because that is exactly how it continued to get worse and it continues today to be a problem. What was the percentage? 20 like 22% of children are sexually abused. Right. You know, like come on, this is modern society. <laughs> why yeah. is this is why does this keep happening? And I think we need to read books like Lolita that are tastefully done. Well, I think a lot of people can't get past the, the fact that, you know, it's about him obsessing over a 12-year-old girl. Well, yeah. I mean, it is easier to read than you can you would think. Let's just put it that way. Because yeah. of the way that he writes it. But you, you're right. You have to be able to stomach the subject matter. So I listened to a couple of podcast episodes that talked about the book. You know, people basically just don't, they don't like, they don't like the idea of it, period. It's just that they felt like it was too self-serving to Humbert. And it didn't empower 
Lolita at all. And it doesn't. It really doesn't. Can I say something? Of course. For that? Okay. That's exactly the fucking point. When a child is abused, it is not the child that comes out victorious. In no way, shape, or form is this a good thing for the child. And the child is a victim and cannot get out of it. And the fact that Lolita was able to get out of it, but guess what? When she did, she only went into a worse situation. And then after that, she went into a worse situation and she died. So Mm -hmm. that's the point of the book. Yeah, well, I think it's still the point of the films as well. But it people see the film as glorifying you know, because of the, the way that it was shot. But it's shot still from the perspective of Humbert. Well, and I think that's why the, the script failed. That's because if you knew a little bit more background about Humbert from the film and you knew that it was from his perspective talking to a jury basically he's writing this memoir knowing he's about to go to trial Mm -hmm. for the murder of uh the man that stole lolita from him i'm spacing his name claire quilty quilty yeah i wanted to say quibbly (laughs) i knew that wasn't right quilty (laughs) yes he he was facing murder charges and he was trying to write out his script to tell the jury like well yes i murdered this man but here's why right and it so it is only from his perspective and the reason the film fails is because it doesn't give you background on humbert you know he was in mm-hmm. mental institutions Before he came to live in Lolita's home, Mm -hmm. he had fell in love with this girl when he was 14 and she was 14 and he, he never got to consummate the relationship because she ended up dying. And so he had this open hole in his heart, you know, and we don't hear about any of that in the film. Well, so Kubrick's film totally skips over all of that, but the 97 film did cover that at the very beginning you're right i remember that now yeah um so it was a little bit more faithful in that sense i mean throughout that film but it it yeah well it, I'm, I'm still not a fan of that one and I, I do think he he skipped over too much as well so humbert when he's writing his memoir is what he calls this he does allow lolita's voice to come out every once in a while and At first, you think, oh, you know, this is innocent. He's attracted to this girl. He really loves her. He's going to wait till she's of a sexual mature age. But you realize very quickly he's not. At first, you, you wonder, well, what does Lolita think? But eventually, as the story goes on, you, he does allow some of her dialogue to come out. And so you hear more of how tormented this child is and then he makes the comment uh, she cried herself to sleep every night true her mother died but also she's being raped every day 
she's being drugged across the country. Uh, she she also says to him at one point, when can we just like go home and live like normal people again? Like at first she's willing to give him a little bit, but after a while he starts completely controlling her life and taking away her childhood, you know, not allowing her to hang out with her peers. He's deathly afraid she's going to fall in love with a boy her age, so she doesn't want boys around. And right, it becomes a much more demented situation. And that's something that the the sixty two Kubrick film does not really address. No, it doesn't, and it it is horrifying, honestly, considering. Stanley Kubrick, you you would expect more from him, quite honestly. Yes, yeah. So to, to jump kind of forward again, the screenplay that he wrote, so it was two hundred and thirteen pages, which if they had shot his script, would have been close to four hours long. Still pretty long, not the seven hours that it originally was, but it was pretty epic um, with his printed version of the screenplay. Can you imagine four hours for that movie? I mean, it's pretty intense. By the end of it, you know, you're glad that it's over. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Uh, Well, I mean, if if it was his screenplay that was actually made, it would have been a completely different movie in the end. Yeah. Um, So you said you read part of it? Yeah, I I picked up. um, You can get a copy of it on archive.org for free. You just have to sign up for an account with them. So that's kind of cool. Uh, but he does have uh, a, some characters that don't make it into the movie, like a psychiatrist who ends up being in the film and also a narrator throughout the story. Hmm. Dr. John Ray. He's kind of. Well, that's because that's the guy in the book. Yeah, yeah, so he did He did add that back into the story. That would make more sense if you're trying to keep with the book, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at first, you know, I was really annoyed by the movie because I had just read the book, for one, and the book is such a masterpiece that to then have to live through that movie, <laughs> it's just... It, butchers it it doesn't even it it's takes comp- yeah. It, yeah it's not the same thing completely different story it, it borrows elements but that's about it yeah and I I understand why they did that but so uh, one question <laughs> I have for you is the um, does the book start out with shooting quilting no no, and that's the other thing that uh, really bothers me about the book. Okay, in his version of the script, um, it starts out with, with uh, Quilty being shot. I wondered about that. I wondered why both Kubrick and who's the 97 guy? Adrian Lin. Yeah, so uh, both, I, I wondered why both of them started that way and as a film it's a good tactic it does offer an element of foreshadowing as well which you know is always good well in in the 97 in lynn's version 
he's driving down the road after the murder, so he, he doesn't give it away. It's not it's not actually the same as what Nabokov wrote as well. But so just after that scene where he gets shot in Nabokov's script, he then goes and cuts to the psychiatrist perusing a manuscript on his desk. Right. The re- reason I didn't like that it started off is, is that because in the book, it's kind of a mystery, you know, as to what's going to happen to Lolita. And it makes you feel more tense about her circumstances. And so mm-hmm. when you're right away told, you know, she's ta- been taken away from Humbert, it kind of loses that intensity, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's one of the reasons I didn't like that the film chose to do that. Um, and and the thing that the other thing I w- wanted to say that I didn't like about Kubrick's film is he glossed over some of the the more difficult subject matters covered. Mm-hmm. So you know Charlotte she ends up getting hit by a car and the reason that she gets hit by a car is because she finds Humbert's journal where he's written, he's professed his love for Lolita, for Dolores, her daughter and, and his dislike, his true dislike for Charlotte. And so the she, cow. you know, yes, the cow and she's just heartbroken and so she's writing these letters. She's writing these letters to people we, you know, we don't know who. And she runs out to put them in the mailbox. And she gets hit by a car accidentally. In the film, we find out that it's okay, Humbert. Don't feel bad because she was dying of kidney disease or... or... She had one kidney. <laughs> and, and she had nephritis. Nephritis. Okay, so which I've never heard of before. She had one kidney. Okay, so so she was gonna die anyways, and she didn't want to tell you, Humbert. But don't worry. It's like takes him off the hook, right? Well, I mean, right before that, though, he was planning on shooting her while she was taking a shower. Yes, which in the book he was gonna drown her, but Mm -hmm. it was a different scene entirely. Yeah, so the, the the comedy, if you can get there, which I I thought it was f- kind of funny in a dark way, but the scene where before she finds the diary, they're, they're like laying in the bed, mm-hmm. and um, she's like telling him, like you better believe in God or or I'm gonna kill myself, <laughs> which is part of the book actually. That's a oh. line from the book. Well, and so was the the dead uh, husband part of it as well? Yes, but not. She doesn't. She didn't have an urn sitting in her? Because I, I thought that no. was kind of funny. No, that was completely over the top. Yeah, that's not. <laughs> but the other I mean, part that they kind of gloss over too is that in the Kubrick film, she doesn't end up dying in childbirth, which... You know, so it's like, it's okay. See, Humbert, you know, totally fucked her childhood, but 
it's okay, look, she's happy, and he gave her all the money, and she lives ever after, happily ever after. So it, it kind of glosses over, again, like the true impact that Humbert had on her life, which was ultimately completely destroying it, killing her mother in a way, and killing Lolita in a way, Dolores in a way, you know. But overall, I think, you know, that the story is more important than than the movies and I, that's why i wanted to mainly talk about the story rather than focus on the movies themselves but you know the the kubrick again like it it was wasn't necessarily well received at the time it did get some notoriety and acclaim and it's still you know it People still like it, but it's definitely not thought of as like his greatest film by any means. What's thought of as his greatest? Well, in my opinion, it's Dr. Strangelove, which was the film that he made after this one. Hmm. Uh, do you remember that one? Vaguely. So it is actually, we mentioned this one on the podcast with Jason. It's um, technically a disaster comedy. So it's, you know, the one with, um, it has Peter Sellers again. And there is a, a base commander that loses his mind and he sends the B-52s with the nukes to Russia. Oh, yeah. To bomb them. And he cuts off communications with uh, the base. See, I don't like, okay, I know, I'm... I'm really gonna. I don't. I just don't like that kind of humor. It's just boring to me. It's so boring. Do you remember watching that movie? I though? do. Now that you remind me, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, in The Shining, you're telling me that he did The Shining. That was such a gross, awful movie. I hated that movie. <laughs> <laughs> that was that's horror. I know, but okay, tell but me Stephen what else King did Kubrick like do? Two thousand one, a space odyssey, Clockwork Orange. Okay, Clockwork Orange. Yeah, one I mean, of my favorite think that's his movies. Best. Yeah, uh, Barry Lyndon, Full Metal Jacket, uh, Pass of Glory was uh, before Lolita, mm. but Spartacus um, was the film before this one, I believe. And that was his big studio picture that he did not enjoy doing. And no one enjoyed watching. <laughs> well, it did get acclaim. It it was well received, and it still but is. But the two thousand one Space Odyssey was also good. Yeah, that that one that was almost, a really good one. I agree that it almost bombed at the at the box because office because it was but, good, you know. The box no, office. no, it it did great. It actually ended up doing great because a lot of uh, people that were experimenting with LSD wanted to go and sit there <laughs> for the the yeah, the star sequence at the end. <laughs> well, the whole thing yeah. is such, it's a very slow paced film. It is. I've fallen asleep to it many times. <laughs> many, but in have. love, in love, just <laughs> like you know, falling asleep to. Game of Thrones, you know, that sort of thing. Like, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I'm I'm unhappy that you don't don't like Doctor Strange Love because I I think it's very funny. I'll have to watch it again. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna make you watch it again. Watch out. You you know, I do have a very dark humor, but I'm not you know slapstick. And and it you know satire and slapstick it, it's a fine line, right? Yeah, I I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily call it slapstick. I would call it more just satire. But goofy satire. Mm-hmm. And, it, and the book, the book that this is based on, was pretty goofy. Yeah, I'll I'll give it another try, but I might just be too serious for it. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you got to remember to laugh every once in a while. I do laugh. <laughs> Never. What? Hardly ever. I'm just kidding. Jeez. Oh, <laughs> you do laugh. You laugh all the time. I, mostly at me. No, mostly at our child. <laughs> yeah. Who's watching? Who's currently watching uh, Clone Wars right now? Yeah. Right. So that we can keep him quiet. And if you're listening to this and you're wondering why the hell are you talking about a book on a film podcast, go read Lolita the Screenplay because that is a film screenplay that didn't get made. And if you want to learn how to turn a book into a movie, that's probably the best way to kind of get started at least. Look at stuff that is more true to the original storyline and do your best to to make that story come alive and what i have to say about that is get your own fucking ideas stop stealing books hey you know a lot of great (laughs) filmmakers have stolen books and ruined the book Uh, it's fine i get it i mean we're all just a (laughs) cesspool of Stealing our each other's thoughts, right? I mean, nothing's new under the sun. There is no such thing as original idea. No, exactly. We all are anymore. just trading, trading thoughts. Yeah, inspiring each other. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit more about the screenplay he wrote because it one it would would have been close to four hours long potentially, but it also was much more avant garde. And there were there were scenes or at least shots that he had wrote about in the script that would have made it almost like a a Fellini film, um, where there's like these shots where you're you're looking at a character and all of a sudden they they look like a completely different person or they're wearing different costumes. Yeah. Hmm. So it and there's also. What's the reasoning for that? To mess um, mess with the the viewer. Well, I think it's also to make you feel a certain way. So, like for instance, if you if you saw Humbert reading uh, the letter from Charlotte, and uh, as he was reading it, he went from wearing his. Uh, university gowns as a professor to looking like Poe (laughs) 
or uh, enacting a routine as Hamlet. That was something that he had wrote, wrote into the script. So that kind of gives you an idea, but also some of like the, the narration, it just puts your mind in a different place when you're, when he's giving you this visual along with dialogue, right? Hmm. So who knows? I mean, it, so he was going to make been... it more silly. No, I would I wouldn't say s silly per se. It's, it's hard to to imagine like the feeling that it may have created. But I guess Kubrick didn't want to go that that uh, experimental because it would have been it would have been a much more experimental. Uh, then why yeah. did he ask him, beg him to write the screenplay in the first place? Well, he, he wanted to see what he would come up with, I'm sure. Yeah. And, and he was hoping that they could pare it down to a you know, two-hour movie. Never ask a writer to turn their book into a screenplay. Come on. Well, they have to want to, and they have to know the process and what it really means for the the production side and still it will come out eight hours <laughs> here's here's the thing kubrick made this film as a dark comedy he did not make it to illustrate nabokov's intent and i think that's why nabokov ultimately really didn't approve of it because he danced around the real subject mm -hmm. and he had um peter sellers you know playing quilty who was the top comedian of the time in his, in his like heyday, uh, making a lot of jokes and mm -hmm. it, he was funny, you know, he was funny in the movie, but it, I don't know if it was appropriate for telling this particular story. It wasn't accurate to the character in the book, you know, Quilty, he was in, you know, he did have a dry sense of humor in the book, but it wasn't as over the top as Kubrick makes him. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, Peter Sellers, he took it to a different level. And, but I think that's what Kubrick wanted to do. Uh, that whole opening scene where he's trying to get him to play ping pong. Great scene. It's a great scene, but it's yeah. not Lolita. <laughs> it's not the book, you know. Right. Yeah, I don't think you can go into wanting to watch uh, Kubrick's Lolita, hoping that you're gonna find the book because it's not there. It's it's there as a guide, and I, I believe that Kubrick, after everything was all said and done, years later, like thought it was not the best idea to do what he did with that film uh, because of the, he, he didn't really address what, what it was truly about. He turned it into a, a farce, basically. Well, it's very typical of that time period. You know, movies do that. They kind of take on the essence of that of the time, the dialogue that's going on in the time. Right. So a, a little bit of history, you know, is definitely plays a, a big factor because at, in 1962, there was a lot of restrictions with the MPAA and the Hayes Code mm -hmm. so that the Hayes Code did not allow 
any kind of sexual content to make it to the screen, you know, it, dialogue especially. And then there was also the, the watchful eye of the Catholic Legion of Decency. <laughs> well, why weren't they watching out for the real baby angels that were getting molested? How about the actual actress that played Lolita who was getting molested by the producer? It's just so hypocritical to me, which is why I'm grateful that, you know, we are opening our minds more and more, I think, as a society, but... Yeah, now with that that information about the producer, you you told me that before. Yeah, what, so I got that, that from, that, from podcast? that podcast, Lolita. Yeah. yeah, and so I trust her. I mean, this girl, sure. she was thorough. I mean, she she interviewed many experts on Lolita, many people involved, you know, in in Lolita somehow, and I think. Well, yeah, that actress Sue Lyon, you know the the kid. Yeah. She. She had had a very dramatic life, from what I've read. Um, going, you know, into her short career, she did not stick around as an actress for very, very long. And why would you? <laughs> With her, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, but um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't. I believe it. I'm, I'm sure there was some something happened, if not with just the producer, but something else in her life that, um, I don't know, maybe that was her first experience, but I have no idea. It was her. She was unknown. She was not known. What they wanted, you know, who they wanted first, the girl who played the parent trap. Haley Mills. Haley Mills. That's who they wanted. But she had a contract with Disney at the time, and her parents said no to Lolita. They said, no, we're going to keep our contract with Disney. Oh, yeah. Now, yeah. if Haley Mills would have played Lolita, I have a feeling the film would have been... <sighs> I don't know. I mean, you're still talking about the same producer and director. Maybe it would have changed... Haley Mills's life, but I really feel like she, her parents were really involved in her acting career. I think I think it might have been a different movie. Well, I think Sue Lyon's parents were involved too. She was modeling. Hmm. No, that would make sense. I f I think that sounds right. I do know that that uh, Dominique Swain, who was the um, 97 actress oh and that and that's the other thing right about the age they were both 14 and 15 yes at 1962 that script they uh, the mpaa forced them to change it to 14 not, that was one of the concessions i heard that it was nabokov who said i don't feel comfortable with having mm. a 12 year old play this role that could be the case uh, from what I read, it was Kubrick fighting with uh, the censors, but mm. could have been a combination of all of that. Heads up. Megan and I had to stop recording that night, and we took it up again a few days later. We had to put the kid to bed. Anyway, we did a little more research on Sue Lyon, 
and check it out. So it's pretty, pretty sad stuff. It's very ironic. Yeah, and disgusting. I mean, it's really... This guy, uh, James B. Harris, he had a, a hand in writing the actual screenplay that was shot, quite a bit of it. Um, Kubrick and Harris were uncredited in the screenplay because they wanted to be able to take advantage of Nabokov's uh, name. Now this came from an article called The Dark Side of Lolita. There's a book that was written by Sarah Weinman. The Real Lolita is the, the title of that book. But this is an excerpt from The Dark Side of Lolita. And you'll be able to find this in the show notes. So uh, Michelle Phillips, uh, who was of the Mamas and the Papas, the musical band, was a friend of Sue, and she had confirmed that she had lost her virginity to James Harris, the producer, uh, just after you know, she had come back from that film tour. And it was also backed up by uh, the best man to her former husband at uh, her first wedding, that is, to Jim Maxwell, and that best man confirmed that there were sexual relations between the two that were taking place during the screening tour of Kubrick's Lolita. Uh, Maxwell said he found out in the summer of 1965, quote, we were discussing her career and she mentioned that after the release of Lolita, she went on a national tour with Jim Harris and that during the tour, they had sex. And uh, so, yeah, that was uh, the summer of 62 when that film was on tour. So she confessed to this man, but did she confess to anybody else that we know of? Well, so Sue confessed to Michelle, her friend, and this was um, an interview of the best man from her first wedding. Right. So two people, but Sue Lyons never came on national television or anything or admitted it to any journalist herself. Well, she did say something, like, I, like this is what happened. She had said, my destruction as a person dates from that movie. Lolita exposed me to temptations no girl of that age should undergo. I defy any pretty girl who is rocketed to stardom at 14 in a sex nymphette role to stay on a level path thereafter. So she believed that this film destroyed her life. <laughs> I mean, that's what I get from that statement. Or this man, Jim, destroyed her life. Oh, yeah, of course. Maybe I mean, if maybe she to. would have been fine had he not had sex with her and maybe yeah. it was probably more than you well, know I mean you think that she admitted to having sex on the tour but I bet you it started before that yeah who knows we'll never we'll never really know there was a third person that wouldn't wouldn't exactly say it, whether or not you know it, it happened but he basically said yeah it was something that was known at the time. Hmm. 
So, um, yeah, it's, this really, it changes your perspective on a film when stuff like this goes down in real life and it, and what the aim of the, the book, or the, at least the message that's conveyed with the book is the opposite. It's not to enable that behavior. I wonder, I'd really have liked to be there during the initial negotiations, you know, like what, what smooth talking did Kubrick do with Nabokov, you know, like how did he get him to hand over his jewel? Did, did, I, I guess my tendency is to believe that Nabokov trusted Kubrick. Yeah. And he didn't think, you know, if he was going to be writing the script, you know, what could go wrong? Well, he never had been involved with the film industry, so. They, they, <laughs> you they, don't they, have they, much faith in your industry. <laughs> well, it is a collaborative art. So if you if you come in as a writer, you, you write a book by yourself for the most part. But when you are talking about a screenplay, you're you're giving it to a director that, that interprets that screenplay, and doesn't necessarily take it word for word. Hmm. And that's that's like most of the time that's the case. Even even if a director wrote the screenplay, he may change it in production or have uh, inspiration from actors or other crew, and make changes right on the spot. And that's really when filmmaking shines I think uh, when you work as a team and come up with new ideas as you go because a lot of times you'll come up with way better ideas so it, it's not surprising that that they changed the script uh, but it wasn't just that they wanted to change it they had to work with you know <laughs> the, the laws that be not only in America but in uh, in Great Britain, in the UK, they have similar. At the time, they had similar laws and organizations that forbade any kind of lewd talk or deviant behavior. <laughs> How old was Kubrick when Lolita came out? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I want to say he was in his thirties. So he could have waited then, the jerk. He could have waited till he could have done it right. Because, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, the 97 film, they were able to, to include the kiss, the kisses, you know, right. and more of an accurate display of this teenager. But what both films failed to do was show the misery that this girl was actually going through and I think that's the most disappointing part mm -hmm. this is the kind of film where the directors owe it to the message of the book to do it right or don't do it at all right I agree I think it's pretty selfish of Kubrick but it could have been you know, maybe Kubrick thought he could get away with more. Once he was in, he was invested. I don't know. I don't know anything about Kubrick as a person. Yeah, well, he he had very specific ways of working. 
and had a very keen idea of what he thought it should be, like what the story should be, what the what each shot should be, what the actors should be doing. Full full control and obsessive control. I don't know if he he had really gotten to that point yet. Um, at this stage of his career, he had just come off of shooting a, a studio film, Spartacus, and he did not really like that experience. That's why he ended up going over to England to make his films from then on out for the most part. Hmm. Um, so he filmed Lolita in England? Yeah, it was filmed in England. Yeah. If you were to pick one of the two movies, which one would you prefer to watch again? Not neither. <laughs> I See, honestly that's, that's the consensus from most people. Honestly, you know, we tried I tried to watch it again with you and you turned it on last night again. Mm-hmm. And it, granted it was late, but I also wasn't thrilled about it. I, I was like, yeah, I, I've seen this. It didn't do anything gut-wrenching like the book did. You know, the book was really gut-wrenching. It was beautifully written. I mean, I have a few quotes written down that I might want to share. Sure, um, go for it. The, the movies just didn't do that to me. The movies were a sore disappointment, and I kept thinking, it needs to be redone. It, it needs to be redone. And so last night when you said that, Nabokov had written a script and pared it down to two and a half hours. I thought, well, there you go. Somebody's got to get a hold of that and make the film. Well, there you go. I mean, movies ruining the book. Movies ruin the book, yeah. They cut out scenes. They make make up scenes. But this movie completely changed the feeling of the subject, you know? Kubrick's, Kubrick's film, right? Kubrick's made it a satire. And then the 97 one. So the second one also misplaced the general theme of the book, keeping the sequence of events more accurately, but still, I guess if I was held at gunpoint, I'd rather watch the 97 one because at least it keeps to this to the book sequence and scenes. It doesn't make up a completely different story almost, you know? Like, it almost felt like Kubrick just, you know, and most people prefer Kubrick's. But well, it just yeah. is a totally different story. And, and yes, the, but the act, you know, Charlotte in Kubrick's? Not, mm-hmm. not, not Charlotte. Not at all. She, she was way too classy, way too giddy and bouncy, you know, in Kubrick's. Shelley Winter. Shelley Winter, yeah. She was not the Charlotte of the book at all. But I do think the girl who played Lolita was more like Lolita in Kubrick's, in the book. Sure. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, yeah, I mean, it again, it, he really went all out to create a dark comedy. Which is fine, but if you're, you know, just don't call it Lolita then. And, and for a while, the, the thing that really irritated me, too, about the movie is that you never hear Dolores. You hear Dolores initially, mm-hmm. right, in both films. But then as you go through the, the movie, 
everybody calls Dolores Lolita. And we know from the book that Lolita was only Humbert's name for Dolores. No one else called Dolores Lolita. I know I understand in order for people to follow, you know, in the movie, it had to be different, but. Yeah, you don't get you don't get seven hours to kind of introduce all of those facts and then stick to it. But, yeah. You just pick one thing and go with it. But I did really, it was another trick of Nabokov, you know, like, well, is Lolita her nickname? You know, for a minute you kind of wonder, but then you soon realize, you know, no, this is, this, this is a girl, this is Dolores Hayes, and Lolita is, okay, I'm going to read you how, how he starts the book off, which is just, to me, I mean, starting a book is key, right? I mean, you got to suck your reader in. Yeah, I'm glad you're going to do that because I wanted to talk about the starting of the Kubrick movie next. Yeah, so here is, here's the, so first we have the foreword, correct? And the foreword is written by, uh, excuse me, a man named John Ray Jr. He's a PhD and he's been given the task of publishing the writing of Humbert. So he goes through and we get a little bit of foreshadowing. We learn, you know, that Humbert has passed away in prison from a heart disease. And this other woman, Ms. Schiller, who has passed away. So we go on and the book starts. Lolita, light of my life, fire of my loins. My sin, my soul. Lolita, the tip of the tongue taking a trip of three steps down the palate to tap at three on the teeth. Lolita. She was low, plain low in the morning, standing four feet ten in one sock. She was Lola in slacks. She was Dolly at school. She was Dolores on the dotted line. But in my arms, she was always Lolita. I mean, it's it's beautifully written. Yeah, and and part of that, not the entire thing, but part of it made it into the '97 mm-hmm. intro. Yeah. So he tried. You're right. It, that one was much closer. I really. It also tells us right from the beginning that mm-hmm. Humbert knew what he was doing was wrong, and this book from the very beginning is anti-pedophilia you know that's that's the thing about it and that people who decide that they're not going to read it because of the subject matter don't realize that the book is anti-pedophilia okay because you haven't read the book and you've only seen the movie it is hard to believe but Throughout the book, Humbert realizes what he's doing is wrong, which makes him a true sociopath. But it also, he realizes that it's wrong, but he's also trying very hard to justify his behavior by saying, you know, well, this has been going on for thousands of years. And in other cultures, parents marry their children. This is just because it's antisocial. And so that's why I'm being villainized. So, right. you know, it it definitely makes one 
contemplate the reason why pedophilia is bad. And it is bad because ultimately it has a terrible, it it destroys a child. Well, not in all cases, but it makes it much more difficult for them to live a normal, healthy life. Right. I think he he feels for her in a, in the deepest way, right? That's why it's sometimes thought of as the greatest love story. Um, but she's a child. And so it makes me wonder, what is it inside of him? You know, what's inside his mind? What scene stuck out for you as being like the best scene? For both films? Mm-hmm. I can tell you the one that repulsed me the most about the 97 one, which is the opening scene where she's under the sprinkler. Oh, yeah. That was yeah. horrible. Um, well, that and then the, the kiss when right before she goes off to camp. Oh, my God. That was awful. But that was much. but that was in the book. OK. And yeah, but the way that they shot it and the way that they had her like jump on him like that, it was is that part of the book? Did she jump on him? Mm, I think I think so. I'll have to. I I'm not gonna say yes because I don't want to misquote. But I feel like she did. And he in the book he would always describe her kisses as sloppy and unexperienced, which I felt sure. like they actually did a good job of doing in that film yeah well i mean she was 15 right Mm -hmm. yeah yeah oh man um yeah i mean it's pretty gross but i wonder mm -hmm. i wonder what those actors were thinking i wonder what he was thinking the actor you know that played humbert in the 97 yeah yeah like how did yeah jeremy irons i want to talk to that guy and find out like how he slept at night after that (laughs) (laughs) yeah he's he's typically plays odd people he was a creep i thought remember i said he was perfectly cast he he seemed like a creep to me he played the perfect creep (laughs) he really did yeah but the my favorite i really did like okay the ping pong scene, it was good. It was really good. I, It wasn't anything to do with the, the book, but it was a really well done scene. Well, and that's, you know, Peter Sellers ad-libbing. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, yeah it was? Is, okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was because Peter Sellers was known for that. And, and he was um, encouraged by Kubrick to do it, so... But so the the voice that Peter Sellers used in that scene mm-hmm. and his voice for Quilty was an impersonation of Kubrick. <laughs> that's what that's what he claimed anyway. I've never heard uh, Kubrick speak. Yeah, you don't get to hear him speak very often. But there's we'll have to look it up and and do a comparison maybe. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I can't think of the my favorite scene in the '97. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I I 
go back to the Kubrick one because it's really a different type of film. It's not really that story, so it's easier to... Probably my favorite scene, though, in the 97 one was when he's coming into the house and Charlotte's showing him the place. And and Charlotte is much more accurately cast in that film as well. Melanie Griffith, yeah. And she just does such a good job um, in that scene and the scene when she finds his diary. So if I had to pick, it would be the scenes with her in it. With Melanie Griffith yeah. in it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she's a great actress. You know who um, her mom is? Mm-mm. Do you remember Tippi Hedren? From Hitchcock? From, mm-hmm. The Birds mm-hmm. and That's Marnie. her mom? That's her mom. Oh, I love them. <laughs> <laughs> and Tippi. Yeah. Oh, Tippi. Yeah. That was traumatic for her, The Birds. Remember? We watched that. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. documentary right oh. let me just leave you all with a quote please so this is a quote um, between the, the from the time between Lolita's escape and her and Humbert's brief reunion and this is Humbert speaking There would be little sense in analyzing the three empty years that followed. While a few pertinent points have to be marked, the general impression I desire to convey is of a side door crashing open in life's full flight and a rush of roaring black time drowning with its whipping wind, the cry of lone disaster. One last thing. Do you have any film recommendations for me do you want to share a film like you should do you want to tell <laughs> everyone that this is the movie you need to watch ha. next hmm. you just you sprung that on me you did not give me a chance to think no about chance that. to prepare nope well <laughs> there's a lot of movies out there check netflix no the one that i just love so much lately and i watched it with with maddox so it's kid approved and um pick of the litter it's really light you know you can laugh you can cry no one's gonna get molested it's about (laughs) you know five lab puppies on their journey to become seen eye dogs and it's just the coolest little documentary i loved it it was good yeah and that that was on netflix and and hulu hulu yeah yeah pick of the litter and the crazy thing is this they're local the the blind the dog blind school all right Thank you for being on my podcast, my lovely wife. Yeah, it's going to cost you. (laughs) Until next time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Cut. Well, that does it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Coming up 
next week, I sit down with my friend Johnny McNeil and we talk about Dogtooth from 2009. So follow along, check out the movie, and come back next week, I hope. Trying to keep this thing rolling. Thanks for joining me. Check me out on filmchurch.org and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Please leave a review. It helps. Thanks. So and now you won't get to hear me say Jesus. Right. <laughs> that was yeah. scary for all the of you <laughs> out there listening. He's going to scare you at one point. Well, we can assume that they're, they've been scared. Okay. So anyway.